I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In this episode, Colonel Charles Bussey discusses the horrors of fighting in Korea and the inhuman conditions faced by civilians. He talks about their brutal treatment by soldiers on both sides, including assaults against women. We describe every episode of this show as an attempt to provide the unsanitized truth about war, and that's why we chose to leave Colonel Bussey's reflections as they are. As difficult as his stories are to hear, I hope you'll understand why we wanted him to tell them in his own words. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Colonel Charles Bussey. Colonel Bussey fought in the Korean conflict during the Jim Crow era, when he and other African-American soldiers were given the worst leadership and equipment due to their race. Well, my name is Charles Bussey. I was a soldier for 24 years, first as a fighter pilot. And uh, when the war was over, I went back to school to get a degree. The Army looks askance at people who don't have degrees, well, they use that as one of the things uh, that they can look askance at you. And uh, when I finished, the job situation was kind of tough. So uh, I uh, went overseas as a combat engineer. And uh, combat engineers are the people who do all the things that the infantry can't do or don't want to do. And it's kind of ugly work. We do many things, however. Uh, we purify the water for the other troops. We uh, did the field fortifications work, and this is, again, those things that the infantry can't or won't do. We put in all the barbed wire, uh, the uh, things that kill people, mines, booby traps, barbed wire, and uh, we handled that, all those things. And when it really got tough, then we worked as infantry as well. My people didn't like that at all. Uh, largely because you find yourself in a position of being 180 shovels by day and 180 rifles by night. Eight or ten days of that uh, becomes kind of tiresome. But uh, I had a very, very fine outfit, and we could do the, do all of those things, and, and we did. Uh, after the landing at Incheon, we forced them back, and they they were in uh, the Koreans were ineffective. Uh, they had nothing going for them at all uh, in the fall. As winter came on, however, this all changed. The Chinese came into it, and they came in. Uh, I've heard many, many numbers, uh, 100,000 strong, 50,000 strong, half million strong, and I have no idea uh, what is valid. But I know that we were outnumbered tremendously. That I do know. But what the actual numbers were, I don't know. But we were, we were a very poor example of fighting men b- beside them. They had uh, a lot of very practical things. As I said, they had uh, quilted uniforms. Like I got one, one uniform. It was heavily quilted and warm. 
We had leather shoes. Uh, one night I lost 39 men to frostbite. Uh, we were wearing the same, the same kind of shoes that I have on. And this is highly inadequate when the temperatures get down to 28 below. The Chinese soldier was well-trained. He was tough. He was mean. And he liked the killing business that he was in. When I got to Korea on the 10th of July, 1950, from that date till the 10th of December, I slept on the hood of my Jeep. I had no tentage. I had nothing. I, I lived like a badger. We had no blankets. We had no tentage of any kind. We just survived. It's like badgers. There's no, unless you can consider a layer of mosquitoes uh, as, a, as a blanket, we had none. This didn't seem to bother people as much as you would imagine. We survived and uh, we lived fairly well, uh, all things considered. In a situation where you could be uh, come under fire at any time, night or day, you were always alert. You were always with it. And uh, everybody griped. Uh, that griping is one of the soldiers, uh, how do I put it? That's his legacy. And uh, it didn't bother us as much as you'd imagine. But I slept on that damn Jeep every single night <laughs> on, on the hood. And uh, I don't recommend it, but uh, we survived it. Soldiers don't perform well under adverse weather. They just don't. The guns don't fire as well. The guys uh, are unhappy, and they they don't uh, they don't fight. They don't don't survive well. There was a certain amount of booze that uh, that came into the country. I'm not a drinker, so it didn't mean much. But uh, I don't know how it got there. I'm told that the, the women's club from the station we had that we were in in, in Japan somehow shipped it over. Uh, in Japan, uh, the whiskey of choice is uh, called Suntory, and it's a, a Scotch-type whiskey. And uh, there was quite a bit of that over there. And then, of course, the British were great traders, and uh, they had an issue of whiskey that came in five-gallon jugs. There was a lot of that around, and guys would trade a rifle off for a five-gallon jug of, of uh, whiskey. There was marijuana by the ton, absolutely by the ton. You can't imagine. In this country, you, you could never see the quantities of marijuana that grew along the roadsides in Korea. And this was a, one of my problems. Uh, I didn't smoke this stuff, and I didn't have much sympathy for people who did. <laughs> the uh, trees would grow maybe 20 feet high. And uh, in the morning, the guys would pick this stuff and put it on the hood of a vehicle, and uh, by evening, of course, it was dry and ready to smoke, you know. I, uh, I had a lot of misgivings about this, and I discussed it with my first sergeant. He said, well, I'll do whatever you want me to do about it. Uh, but he said, you can't stop it. You, you, there's no way that you can stop marijuana from growing or, or the kids from using it. You just can't. You're stuck with it. And he was right. Uh, there's, just, there's just nothing you could do. When the temperatures get down, I'll say, below 8 or 10 degrees, people are not as efficient, and their clothing is not, uh, uh, our clothing wasn't efficient. Like I say, I, I lost 39 men to frostbite one night, and I, I went down to the hospital. The doctor was breaking these dead toes off. He had a sort of uh, forceps, they, doctors call them forceps, they're pliers to me, 
and he was just breaking off these toes, throwing them in a little, a little pan over there. When this happens, uh, the, the guys know that it's going to happen to them, too, or they expect that it will, and uh, they never came back. Those guys who got the frostbite never came back. I don't, know where, I don't know where they went. They must move them to the rear and into some hospital or something, and that was it. When this, uh, the guys are under that, those conditions, they don't, they don't fight well. They don't, they're unhappy. Uh, they know that some civilian or some army officer or somebody way back in the rear didn't look out for them because we were there in July, and that was plenty of time to get uh, several tons of boots out there, but they, they never came. They came up with a thing they call muckalucks. The muckaluck is a, a boot that you can put inserts in, sort of felt inserts, but you can't walk in them very well. And uh, so when, you're, when your equipment is poor, a soldier's poor. He's never better than his equipment, never. And ours wasn't very good. The blowback weapons didn't perform at all, or the, performed poorly. You know, the carbines and uh, M1s would work all right, but uh, they're heavy. Uh, at least the, uh, the M1s were heavy. And uh, any time you've got soldiers in the field, you've got bitching and groaning and moaning. And even beyond, even beyond what the equipment uh, is entitled to, they, uh, they, 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 they want the very best of equipment and the very best of clothes, and, and, and I think they're entitled to it. I think there's no question about this. Uh, when you're out there in the field and it is cold, or even when it's warm, guys want the very best of equipment, and I think a fighting man is worth it. First of all, we had lousy leadership. That's the first thing. Now, that this was the Jim Crow Army that I was in, and uh, this means many ugly things. First of all, Whatever equipment is is available, you're going to get the poorest, always. There's no question about it. And uh, you also have the poorest officers. You had officers who, uh, well, let me put it this way. You had the poorest possible officers, white fellas. The organization that I was in had um, 13 different battalion commanders. And a battalion commander is a man who commands a 1,000 men. He's got to be damned good, and we didn't have them. We had white officers who uh, had goofed off someplace else, goofed somebody's, some general's wife or, or whatever, but they weren't out there with the troops. And uh, the troops realized, of course, couldn't help but realize that uh, they had the poorest quality of white officers that were available. This is an ugly statement, but it's true. And I, I can show you 10,000 guys that will testify to this. I said we had uh, very, very poor officers. When we got up to the Changchun River, this was immediately before the Chinese came in, General MacArthur's headquarters put out a little poop sheet that said uh, the first troops to the Yellow River will be the first troops home. Bullshit. It, it, didn't, it didn't happen ever. <laughs> I didn't see this sign that said this. But that was that was on everybody's mind. Everybody knew that. Well, my God, we got to get up there first. Because the first troop, troops uh, to the river, the Yellow River, be the first troops home. Well, that was immediately before the Chinese came in. 
when they came in, they, they saw to it that nobody got home for Christmas, uh, any Christmas if, if possible. They, um, we were up there and we did nothing. We just milled around and it was beginning to get cold and tens of thousands of North Koreans wanted to head south because they know that when the Chinese get into the war, there's rapes by the million. Uh, uh, they, they, they live real tough uh, when the Chinese army comes in. So we, we, we've probably ferried two or 3,000 people across the river. There, was, there were some uh, barges there, and we ferried people back to the south side of the Changchun River so they could uh, continue southward. This worked fine, but it had nothing to do with the war. It was just, it was make work. And I believe in make work. I, I, I swear by it. If you've got people laying around doing nothing, then they're going to get involved with the rapes and anything else. But if you work the shit out of them, uh, you have very little trouble. No fights, nothing. Everybody, they, they, get, they get along real well. So we did this for maybe a week. We started the day after Thanksgiving, and we were doing this up until Christmas. We did nothing. We were just milling around up there. And uh, then we didn't know that the Chinese were in the war until they could kill those people in the tents that I mentioned earlier. Then everybody realized that, oh, this is for real, and the Chinese are for real, and we're in trouble. And we were in trouble, believe me. The first encounter I had with uh, Chinese, I was amazed. They had big feet. Hell, they, they were about size 12. So I, was, I was amazed at the size of the feet on these guys. We were working hard by then, and uh, I got a call one night about midnight from the regimental headquarters. They said, uh, get two platoons ready to go, and we got a job for you. And uh, I took a dim view of it, as, as dim a view as a lieutenant can with the full colonel, uh, which ain't very much. Um, well, I went up to his office there and uh, he showed me where there had been a roadblock and some people dead and yeah, there was a hospital I've forgotten the, the, the number or the name of this hospital but he said uh, you'll have to walk because we can't send our tanks out at night I don't know why but tanks do not fight at night never and I, I've never heard a good excuse for it but uh, except that they're noisy but anyhow, he pointed out where I was to go, and a very, very, a very weird thing happened to me. We, we walked up this road, five, six, seven miles, I guess, and uh, there were some Chinese up on a hill, uh, and they had some 55-gallon drums, and they were laughing and talking, having a, having, having a big time. So I broke my people up so that we could get to them before they ever became aware that we were there. And... I said, don't fire until you hear us firing down below. And they did, or they, they waited. And then they shot this bunch up. There's, oh, maybe a dozen men there, and they shot them up. They came back off the hill, and then I headed for this hospital. And, uh, and this by now it's 1 o'clock in the morning, I guess. And I heard somebody call my name. Now, we're way, way, way uh, north, and... You don't expect someone to call your name in the middle of the night. You just don't. And I kept hearing this guy call my name. And I didn't know what to make of this. But when I left Bakersfield, my hometown, I came down to Los Angeles. I was sort of the 
idol of ridicule. No one ever heard of Bakersfield before, you know. And I didn't know whether to answer this uh, call or not. But there were three or four vehicles that had been shot up on the side of the road. So I answered. And uh, when I answered, then this guy called again. And I said, where are you? And he said, I'm down at the bottom of this hill, just below where, you, where you're standing. And I went down there, and sure enough, there was a guy that I knew in high school. And he's one of the guys who used to ridicule me about being from Bakersfield. And they have a tree there that has exposed roots. And he had crawled up under this tree, and that's how he, he uh, evaded the Chinese. Uh, but he says, my back is broken. I said, how do you know? He said, well, I can tell. So anyhow, we drugged this guy out of there, went down to the hospital, and there was no one there. The Chinese had turned over uh, guys who were in traction or in all, all kind of miserable conditions. And uh, the doctors had run off into the night, and, and I do not find any fault. Uh, given the opportunity, I would have done the same. But they uh, were out there, and so we got some fire started and uh, started calling the medics to come back in. Uh, we'd had a lot of shooting uh, by then, and uh, the, the Chinese had moved out, and the doctors came back, and we got this hospital up and running. But they should never, never have been there. A hospital has no, no means of fighting or supporting themselves. That's not their business. But they're up there way, way, way north, uh, up in, in Chinese country, and why they would set this thing up that far away from any kind of support, I'll never know. But uh, we got them in and, and got the hospital uh, running, and the doctor looked at this kid, and he said, he's got uh, three ribs broken on one side and four on the other, L1, 2, and 3, or whatever. They described these things. But I, I was amazed to find this guy who I hadn't seen in, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years, way up there, almost up to the Yellow River. And uh, anyhow, we did the little killing job there, and uh, uh, then they sent us over to another town, and there was nobody there, so it didn't amount to much. But uh, it's you don't fight well when it's cold. You just don't. But uh, that, we had a cold night that night. I'd been up two days and two nights by then, and uh, I did have a bed by then, uh, believe it or not. But uh, the little man called me in the middle of the night, and he said, uh, I got a problem. Now, this is the guy that's got 3,000 men work for him. Uh, and I resent him putting this kind of thing off on me, and I told him so. And he just laughed and said, we'll be ready to go in five minutes. What had happened, one of our battalions had gotten far afield from where we were, and the Chinese were moving rather rapidly. And uh, the route that they had moved away from us initially, a bridge had been blown behind them, so they had no way of getting back across, but they didn't know that. And uh, he said, the last time we saw them, they were in this big white spot in an area that hasn't been surveyed. Uh, you just got a big white spot on the map. And he said, they're, they're in there somewhere and find them. Well, hell, that's, this was not my business at all, but anyhow... He said, take two men. And I said, I need, I need a platoon. He said, oh, no, no, no. If you've got a platoon, anything comes up, you're going to start fighting. And uh, you're not out there to fight. You're out there to find these people. And so I, there's a lieutenant who lives in Los Angeles, a West Point type that I used to go to Sunday school with. 
and he's kind of a guy that could shake, rattle, and roll. And I had a sergeant who would rather shake, rattle, and roll. And so I took these two guys. We uh, walked off into the night. The ore over in North Korea is uh, a low-grade of molybdenum, and it glows at night. Or moonlight night, this stuff glows. And we walked off into the night, and uh, I heard a woman scream off in the distance because every home, every house in North Korea has a mud fence around it. The, guy, the guys that I chose, I knew, would know how to handle themselves. No matter, no matter what caused that woman to be screaming, they, they could handle it. We, we uh, got to the fence and over the fence, and in Korea, they save all fecal matter, and they use that for fertilizer. Uh, and it's very effective. This girl was screaming, and she was drenched in this stuff from her chin down, the damnedest thing you ever saw. And so we put it around in the, in the chamber there, and there were two soldiers from, from my outfit, not my company, but from another company. Their CO was a very good friend of mine. So anyhow, I gave him hell for being, now, by now they're eight or nine miles from home. When I heard this woman screaming in the night, I assumed that Chinese soldiers had gotten to her somehow. They were every place, the, the Chinese soldiers. So they were just like flies. They are just all over the place. So anyhow, um, it turned out that these two soldiers were in the process of raping this woman, but they, they had a tank in their backyard about the size of, of that room. And uh, they saved this fecal matter. And rather than be raped, this gal jumped off into this tank. Uh, you never saw a mess like this in your life. And I gave them hell for being there and told them to take off and go back home. And they did. But they, they were reluctant even then. I don't know what they had, had in mind uh, for a woman in that condition. But they said, well, you know, he said, uh, ever since the dawn of time, soldiers... Uh, had right to the spoils. I said, well, she said, damn sure spoiled. I don't know what the hell you're hanging around here for. But uh, they, uh, they said, well, you know, we lost a lot of soldiers getting, uh, getting up to this point in this country. And now we got Chinese to worry about. And uh, we got rights to this woman. I said, no, you don't. So anyhow, I take off home. And they, they did, and we did. But the thing that they'd sent us out there to do in the first place was to find a battalion that somehow was disconnected and from the rest of the regiment. And, uh, oh, this old man did another thing. He said, you can have one ration, period. One ration is not a lot of food. But, you know, we walked all night long. And just before daybreak, uh, we stumbled upon a little hut, kicked the door in. And there was an old, old man and an old, old woman. I've never seen people that old. Uh, their skin was like wax. Old-timers, and they couldn't speak to us. We couldn't speak to them. But there's some things in life that happen, and you recognize them right off. There was a Chinese soldier there who'd been shot through both legs. And each of his legs was the size of his torso, and he had gangrene. Gangrene's a terrible thing. And then he, he kept beckoning for me to, to shoot him. Well, 
shooting an able-bodied soldier is one thing and shooting a, a man with gangrene is another. So I talked to these two guys who were with me and uh, said, what should we do? They said, well, from the smell of him and the looks of him, uh, he ain't going to live long. He's going to be living miserable for whatever time he's got. So anyhow, we we took him out of doors and we uh, got some pillows against his head and we shot him. That sounds kind of crude, but I, I think it's a humane thing to do. And we started walking again. And I wasn't expecting to be surprised the way I was, but I heard a guy uh, put one in his gun and halt who goes there. And I told him who I was, and he says, What's the password? Well, hell, I didn't know what the password was. I, I'd left home the day before. Anyway, uh, he said, oh, well, I know you anyway. So his boss, who was a very good friend of mine, uh, was up the hill from, from where we were standing there talking. And so I climbed the hill, and uh, I asked him, what the hell's going on? He said, well, and this guy's name was Clayton. He said, he's collecting all the radios in the battalion. Nobody's got a radio. Uh, he collected them all several days ago. And I asked him why. He said, well, that's just the kind of man he is. That's the kind of, kind of Italian commander we've got. So I went over to this man's uh, headquarters, and he said, what are you doing here? I had a note that the, the regimental commander had given me to give to him, and, and I gave it to him. And he said, well, you can't be here. He said, uh, we're surrounded by Chinese. He says, matter of fact, I've killed 100 or so myself. When I talked to my friend... I said, well, what about combat? He said, hell, we ain't got no combat. We got nothing. We're just here, that's all. So this old man was trying to convince me that he had killed all these Chinese himself and uh, that I couldn't possibly have gotten there because he was in, he was in, in, in complete charge of that sector. Anyhow, I told him, I said, well, here's your note. I'm going back. And he said, no, you, you can't leave here. And uh, the scariest I guess I've ever been in my life uh, he took his gun and put one in the chamber. And I I had the feeling that when I got to the door, that that joker was going to put one in my head. I could just see my brains coming out through my head. Or he'd, he'd splinter my spine or something. Something drastic was bound to happen. When a guy puts a bullet in, the, in, in his gun, well, something's supposed to happen. But I, I, I just, I walked on out and... Uh, and, and left. And uh, as I left, I said, it's uh, Chinese are all over the place. You, you may have a hard time getting, getting back home. Anyway, we, uh, I, I walked away. And, uh, and I told him exactly how to get to where we were. I had a couple of bulldozers from where his vehicles were going to have to go to get up a hill there. I told him, we'll, we'll drag your vehicles up the hill so that you, because you can't climb it. It's too steep. And uh, they, they, they gave him a better job when he got, got home. They gave him a better job, and they made him part of the G2 setup. Uh, and so I should have shot him. But that's the kind of officers we had. Not all of them, but we had a lot of them like that. He got back that evening just before sundown. And let's see, it was, I, I estimated it to be 30 miles. That's a long walk. That's a long, long walk. That was, that was an interesting evening.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. There came a time, and this was about the, let's say the 20th of December. That may not be exactly right, but about that time. Uh, and they, they really moved in on us. And I had several things that were my province, things that I took care of myself personally. And one of them was to survey the area that we were moving in, had moved into or moving into. And I... I had bulldozers and whatnot, and every stream, every rivulet, every passageway of any kind, I surveyed, and I looked the countryside over, and I I took notes and whatnot, and I took these notes back to the regiment, and they put them on their board. And wherever you go, there are always little means of, of passage, uh, one type or another. So I, I did that first. I did it myself. I didn't, uh, I, I did all of it. And that saved our bacon many times, in fact, uh, mine and, and their regiments. Uh, and the Chinese were moving all, by then they were, they were really, really moving over and they were, they were shooting our kids right and left. There came a time when it was obvious that they were going to move in and take over. And they did. And, uh, I had a way out from these, these roads and things that I'd surveyed. Uh, it's a thing I, I call a goat track because it was not a road. It was just a, a trail, really. And uh, I had this tra- trail uh, mapped out, and I uh, uh, told the regimental commander that if we, if we got into a, a jam, we could get out this, on this little uh, country road that I had. And it would take us all the way back to Pyongyang, which is a capital. He didn't have much faith in that because at that point he thought that uh, we were going to be able to uh, wage a successful war against the Chinese, which was foolhardy. I also discovered a, a, a transportation or a communications net. Uh, and I don't know why the, the uh, division had this thing back in the, way back in the country there, and no one knew about it until I had stumbled up on this thing and I reported it, but somehow it didn't register uh, with our people when, as nightfall fell on about the 20th, it was obvious that we had to move. Uh, the Chinese were moving fast by then. I told him, uh, the, the colonel, he could get out that way because the Chinese had cut off the main road 
and you could hear you could hear this fire they were putting up, and they were really they really meant business. And we came out on this little little uh, uh, dirt track, goat track, I guess I call it, and uh, it took us all the way. Uh, we bypassed the Chinese, and uh, and by then it was bitter, bitter cold. I guess by then it was twenty second, twenty third, and uh, again we lost a lot of men. I had a little reconnaissance team out, and uh, they uh, went to the uh, marshaling yards there, and they found a lot of PX supplies. I said, oh, that's great. Pull a trailer down there and, and, and get loaded up, because we'll probably need it before we get where we're going. And those sons of bitches came back, and they had rubbers. That's all, just rubbers. They had a whole truckload of rubbers. <laughs> no, no, no place to use them at all. I was a little unhappy with them uh, because they had chewing gum and all kind of goodies there. And here they came back with this doggone uh, rubbers. Anyway, we, uh, we headed south. And being engineers, we had a lot of space and we had a lot of food. And uh, we started picking people up. And uh, the road was absolutely full of soldiers from full kernels down, and they, all the trucks were full, and the guys started riding up on the top, and it, and it was bitter, honest to God, it was, it was terrible. We started heading south, no instruction, no one knew where to go, how far to go, uh, we had no information of any kind, and we drove about 100 miles down the road, and we fed all these people, and the vehicles that didn't have gasoline where we ran, we ran out of gas, they just drove them over to the side of the road and, and left them there. Uh, at least they could have burned them, I felt, uh, so that the enemy couldn't use them either. But anyhow, uh, we stopped. At, we drove about 100 miles, and we stopped and set up a little, little barrier there so that uh, I didn't think the Chinese could travel that far on foot, but uh, you couldn't afford to gamble. The next day, we drove down to Kaesong. That's where they had the uh, the peace treaty meetings later on. We got down to a place called the Imjin River. And Imjin was a, a fast, a very fast river. And uh, I had a lot of Bangalore torpedoes. And a Bangalore torpedo is a, a pipe that's loaded with dynamite or an, an explosive, I guess I should say. And you could screw one into the next one. So, that you, and you could, on the case of a river, you could screw it and, and push it out. And uh, I didn't want those Chinese to be able to walk across the ice to get to us. We were on the south bank. And the first three or four days, this went on fine. We could push, we just push these uh, torpedoes out there, fire them, and they'd crack that ice. And the Chinese then couldn't cross the river. This colonel that I worked for decided that those things made too much noise. And they made a lot of noise, for sure. But they cracked the ice so that the enemy couldn't walk across. We had a, a serious uh, confrontation, he and I, about those things. But I knew damn well that, first of all, this Chinese fellow only weighs 125 pounds. And so they could have walked right, right across on the ice. But when he wouldn't let me fire those damn things, the next day at noon, 10,000 of them crossed right where we were. They piled in on us. And uh, 
They're a little smarter than we were. They didn't stop and fight. They just started running toward the rear. And they, they ran back maybe three or four miles. And then they started the fighting. They cut all the communication wires, everything. They, they just they put us out of business. Lost a lot of men there, too. As a matter of fact, that's all we did was lose men. But uh, we uh, did get back as far as our vehicles. And the next day, I met Dudley Watson on the, on the, the bridge across the, uh, the, uh, the Kempo. Dudley Watson was a classmate of mine in flight school. A very tough, hard kind of a guy. He got killed later uh, after Korea. He was a jet pilot, and uh, he was night flying on, um, with another fella, and the plane just blew. And no one ever knew why. But he was crossing the bridge going one way, and I was crossing the other. And vehicles moved very slowly. And I recognized him and yelled at him, and we stopped and talked for a few minutes. I said, say, any vacant beds in this BOQ you live in? He said, oh, hell yes. He turned around and went back and introduced me to somebody. And uh, I got in this bed, I'm telling you. And I, I was there. Well, this was this was supposed to have happened in the morning about 7, 30, 8 o'clock. And uh, I had my Jeep driver come back and pick me up at 6 o'clock that night. And he did. And I went on back to my own, my own business. But uh, I had a hell of a, hell of a night's sleep, or another a day's sleep at least. And I never saw him again. He went on about his business, and I did the same. I did see him later, but uh, back in the States. I hadn't been in the bed since the 10th of July, uh, and this was uh, Christmas Day. And a bed's a bed, believe me. Uh, it's the sort of thing you take for granted, but uh, I slept well. I said that was the best Christmas present I'd had <laughs> since I left Japan, and I did enjoy it. There were no Christmas packages. There was no mail. It was just uh, another cold, miserable day, and nothing more, nothing more. No, there was no mail of any kind, and they hadn't, we hadn't had any mail for a considerable period of time. I think that people were hardly aware of the fact that it was Christmas. It just didn't mean much. It meant nothing, really. Because all that time, staying alive was the important thing, keeping that river frozen. But no, there was there were no there were no greetings and none of these things that uh, people normally do. None at all. I think that your concentration was on uh, either staying warm or getting some sleep or something that was significant, like staying alive, things like that. It was not a holiday. We moved uh, south, southward, and we moved into a schoolhouse. The only real shelters we had over there were schoolhouses. Every town in Korea has a school, and a pretty decent school. Uh, They only taught uh, animal husbandry and farming and things like that, but uh, they were adequate. And we had plenty of stoves. So we had no trouble uh, staying warm once we got back to it so we weren't under fire. And uh, the people that remembered us had harvested their rice, but they had no, no way to get it to market. And so there was nobody to, to tell me not to. So we uh, loaded their, their rice harvest up and took it back to one of the little towns uh, down the road from us. It was Christmas for them. But uh, 
That's about the best you can say for it. But we did, the mill did catch up with us, yes. You know, that's, that's, that's your life. And, and you hear about your kids and, and the life that you would like to live in or be a part of. And yeah, mill is very important to everybody, regardless of grade. Mill is damn important. It was a grim, ugly time of life in the way you looked at it. There were no gifts, nothing cheerful about any aspect of it. And I say we were on the road four or five days heading back towards Seoul. And Seoul had been completely ravaged. There was nothing there. You could stand on the far side of town and you could look all the way across Seoul. And Seoul is a great big town. Christmas had passed us by the time we got into a, a situation where we could in, or participate and enjoy life. Was, we had mail and all that sort of thing. And uh, it, Christmas never happened at all. It just didn't happen at all that, that year. I say because Christmas had already passed us before we got back to a, a situation that was comfortable and meaningful. And, of course, we had a lot of Christmas cards and things that came in a month later. It was an entirely different kind of a Christmas than any of us had ever been exposed to. Like I say, it was over before I became aware of it. I had two kids in, and I could imagine the kind of things that they were doing. They didn't even know me. Well, I guess my oldest son knew me, but my daughter didn't. As a matter of fact, something happened, and I told her not to do something. And she went ahead and did it, and I just swabbed her. And she said, Mama, that man hit me. Uh, she didn't, didn't know me at all because I didn't get back until the next summer. Hey, I'm sure that the people at home did the usual things uh, that people do for, for Christmas. I sent out a couple hundred Christmas cards, mostly to old soldiers. I gave a few gifts to my, my worthy children. <laughs> Uh, I, I sent out a few gifts that uh, my grandkids, you know, and things like that. Uh, I enjoy Christmas. It's uh, not so much a fun time, but uh, a time of goodwill, and I, I enjoy it. A lot of booze, a lot of whatever. Right now, I hope I don't have to have any more cold ones. Uh, I, can, I can do without them for sure. Yeah, it, there's no question about it. It's, it's a time of goodwill. And uh, people generally, I think, uh, they feel good, good toward each other, neighbors or whatever. Uh, most people participate in it one way or another. And I hope we don't have to have any more Christmases where the kids are getting shot. I don't ever want to see a young man have to go out to fight again. I think it's wasteful. I'd like to see him put a stop to it. Yeah, there's a thing in that book that I sent you. We're in the very back. It, it, it tells you what our losses were in, in guns. Guns cost one hell of a lot of money. And we lost, I don't have the numbers before me, but uh, we lost hundreds of guns. It's uh, mainly we lost people. And uh, I, I just feel that you can't replace them. Then I was there, and uh, so I participated in that. But... Uh, when you lose a kid, you, you've lost a human being for nothing. We can't even win. And when we do win, we develop Japan, we develop Germany. We, and uh, I think it's a damn shame. 
no matter who's in power, I just think the losses are they're absurd. And of course, the nuclear weapons, I'm categorically opposed to them. I just, we had a lot of guns, no beds. <laughs> uh, it's difficult uh, to get ready for 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 combat. It's it, it's difficult, even if it's summer. It, you've got a you've got a weapon to worry about. You've got there's a lot of, of uh, make work, if you will, and uh, you've got to participate in it. And uh, it's war's tough. War's hell. Uh, no matter how you hack it up, it's it's a tough. Ugly place to be. Now there are some guys that enjoy it. Some guys get to, get a hell of a kick out of it, but not many. Most guys are are uh, feel badly about it, feel unhappy about it, because the first thing that happens, well, it doesn't matter whether you're in the Korean Army or the Chinese Army or the U.S. Army. The first thing that happens is uh, women and kids start dying on the side of the road. It doesn't matter who killed them. It doesn't make a damn bit of difference. But a lot of dead old men, women, and kids start dying for no reason. They're just, just because they're there. It, it's an ugly situation. It's an inhuman situation. We'd been up guarding a bridge once, and uh, I could hear a lot of gunfire behind me. And we were relieved, uh, say, at 2.30 in the afternoon. And the, the ditches on the side of the road were full of babies and women and old men, not combatants at all, just, just, just people who were, were, had been shot, uh, like that Milai thing that you heard about. We got some bad GIs, and they, 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 they enjoy killing people. Uh, and this happens not just once. This happens frequently. Uh, guys are peeled because they're there, and... Uh, I tell a little story, and a lot of people don't like it, but I was doing some mapping, planning some mine, mine, mine warfare, and up above me uh, on the hill there, uh, there were a couple of GIs, and they were laughing and bullshitting, you know. And the Korean male wears a little upside-down hat. I'm sure you saw those. And the guy said, one of them said to the other, how far away you figure that old motherfucker is? And the guy said, oh, 600 yards. The other guy says, I bet you $10 I can hit him. The guy said, you're on. Boom! And this old man come rolling off the hill. He hadn't done a damn thing to anybody. But just on a $10 bet, the guy killed him. And then this, you get a lot of this sort of stuff. It's an inhuman thing. It's the only way to describe it. Uh, uh, guys do all kinds of things. They rape women. Uh, and women by the thousand come by, if they hear the Chinese are coming, they start to run. If they know that Americans are there, they start to run. They're in mortal fear of the kind of things that happen to them. And if you're the CEO and this happens, how do you tell yourself, well, I'm going to turn this guy in to, to the MPs so they can put his ass in Leavenworth? Because this is one of your soldiers. That, that same night, you might need him to, to help hold the ground that you're on. Uh, any way you look at it, it's a dead-bang loser. There's no other way, and, and they do. They rape women. There's no limit to what a, the GI will do. People are funny. If you have a kid that lives down the street here, he has a certain pattern of decorum. He acts a certain way. But you move that joker out 
into Korea or someplace, he's an entirely different person. He don't give a damn, and he'll he'll do he'll do things that he couldn't even he couldn't even dream of doing if he were at home. We're a funny people. Uh, it doesn't matter what your religion is. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not. We got thousands of thou shalt nots. I don't care what the religion is. It, it means the same thing. But when you send him away, then he'll do any damn thing he pleases. Anything. There's just no limit to what a guy will do once you get him away from home. And he, he can do these things with impunity. Uh, he didn't have to worry. He didn't have to worry about it. Uh, you just just do it. I wouldn't exactly say for fun, but uh, I guess that's what it amounts to. That was Colonel Charles Bussey. To hear him speak about his time as a member of the famous Tuskegee Airmen in World War II, click the link in the description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.